0: Jude, verses 17 through 25. Have you ever experienced life-altering mercy? Someone else's act of goodness and compassion extended toward you that prevented a great misfortune resulting in change. On June of 1983... A startled mother and father were awakened in the middle of the night to the screaming cry of their four-month-old infant. They noticed immediately this wasn't the normal change me, feed me, or burp me cry. This time something was different. After various attempts to calm their son, to their shock they discovered a large amount of blood in the infant's diaper. Something was wrong. Deeply concerned they rushed their son to the nearest emergency room. And after the initial examination, the doctors diagnosed that their child had a case of intestinal malrotation, the twisting of the large intestines, and the baby needed immediate surgery. The baby had lost so much blood, he needed a blood transfusion. It happened so, the mother and the child share the same blood type, and the mother said, anything for my son. The baby was proceeded into the operating room, and after what it seemed like an eternity of waiting, the doctors finally finished the four-hour surgery. They informed the parents, the surgery went well, but we'll just have to wait and see how the baby would react and recover, because the baby was stabilized, but was still asleep. The parents, the family members, the nurses, the doctors all hoped for the best. They waited for their baby to wake up, one hour, three hours, six hours went by. The nurses would come in constantly to check the baby's vitals, but there was no change. Twelve hours passed by, then eighteen. The mother and father waited restlessly with no sleep. Twenty-four hours, still no sign of waking up. The doctors came by between the shifts to check on the boy's status, and still yet, nothing. Thirty-six hours, forty-eight hours, two days went by. The doctors began to warn the baby's parents, Prepare for the worst. The baby may not wake up. In desperation, the parents pleaded the doctors, please do whatever necessary. Just please help my baby to live. Another six hours. 54 hours. 60 hours. 66 hours. 72 hours. Three whole entire days went by. And just when it seemed all hope was gone, miraculously, to everyone's shock and amazement, the baby opened his eyes. The entire hospital erupted in celebration. What reason for great joy. The exhausted parents, in tears, were so relieved. The parents were finally encouraged to get some sleep while the nurses of the hospital took turns caring for the baby during his recovery. The doctor said, this is a miracle. Bring him back up when he grows up and gets married so we can remember and we can celebrate. Through the goodness and care of many, the baby not only survived, but he grew up to be a healthy boy He came to America, he eventually got married, and had three kids, Katie, Micaiah, and Emmett, and he's preaching here this afternoon. Although I don't remember anything that happened to me as that four-month-old baby, I know one thing, I experienced great mercy, life-changing mercy through the hands of those who fought hard for my life and agonized for me. I want to ask you, brothers and sisters, have you ever experienced life-altering mercy. This afternoon we're concluding our two-part study in Jude in our series, The Fight of the Faithful. As I mentioned last Sunday, the book of Jude is well known for its famous exhortation in verse 3, Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude instructs Christians, you and I, to fight for the faith because false teachers and their false teachings have infiltrated the church, causing much division and discouragement among the believers. So in light of this, Jude writes a necessary appeal to the believers to contend for the faith, to agonize for the faith with urgency. The fact is, over two millenniums later, the situation hasn't changed much. False teaching and false teachers and false converts, false church practices still influence our churches. That's why the epistle of Jude is a powerful call, a relevant charge, and a necessary reminder for Christians then and today. Regardless, the book of Jude has been known by some biblical scholars as the most neglected book in the New Testament. I shared with you last week its brevity, its strangeness, its severity may contribute to some of the reasons why. But since we have the opportunity to meditate upon this short and spicy power-packing epistle for these two weeks... Let's neglect it no longer. Let's heed the message of Jude carefully. Amen? I shared with you last week, if you want to fight to win, you have to play both defense and offense well. And from verses 1 through 16, Jude instructed us how to contend for the faith by playing good defense. Well, in our passage today, Jude teaches us how to contend for the faith by playing good offense. Jude reminds us of the great life-altering mercy. When we Christians encounter, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, the great mercy that he has bestowed on us. The Lord Jesus, who keeps us to the end by keeping us in his love, he keeps us to glory. So from our passage, I want to share with you three ways Jude instructs us on how Christians can be kept in the faith to the end. Three ways Jude instructs Christians on how we can be kept in the faith to the end. Here's the outline so you know where we're headed. Point number one, remember the faith of the apostles. Remember the faith of the apostles. Point number two, remain in the love of God. Remain in the love of God. And point number three, rejoice in the certainty of Christ's reign. Rejoice in the certainty of Christ's reign. Three points, remember, remain, rejoice. Brothers and sisters, I pray this message will remind you anew that the keeper of promises will keep your souls to the end, no matter what trials or tribulations that come your way. I pray through this word you'll be heartened again by the great encouragement of this letter and challenged by its charge of the necessity and urgency to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Amen? Guests and visitors, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us for our weekly Sunday gathering. If you are here and you do not consider yourself a Christian, We especially welcome you. As Pastor Jeremy said, we have been praying for you, praying that God would lead you here this afternoon. Scripture says faith comes by hearing and hearing the words of Christ. And so we pray that God would grant you ears to hear his words today in order that you may receive the gift of faith and repentance through our Lord Jesus Christ today. So without further ado, let's turn to his word found on page 1027 of the Blue Bibles around you. As you turn there, please... I want to encourage you to keep your Bibles open and follow along and reference it often as I read and preach. So you know this is God's word for you, to grow you in your love and in your knowledge of Him. Jude, verses 17 through 25, says this. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy through the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Everybody said, Amen. How can Christians be kept in the faith to the end? How can you, Christian, brother, or sister, be kept in the faith to the end? Point number one. Remember the faith of the apostles from verses 17 through 19. Look with me to those verses again, verses 17 through 19. It says this, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Holy Spirit. As you can see, verse 17 and 19 Seems like it's a repetition or an extension of the previous verses, the huge section that we spent a lot of time in from verses 5 through 16, further describing the characteristics of false teachers and false converts who have infiltrated the church. Certainly that's true. Look at verse 19. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Holy Spirit. You see, false teachers and false converts are the one who cause divisions. They're the ones who are in the church, but not of the church. They're the ones who don't care for unity in the household of God. They're ones who seek to tear down rather than build up. Jude tells us they are worldly people. They're the ones who claim they love Christ, but in reality they love the world. Jude wastes no words, doesn't he? To identify them exactly for who they are. They are devoid of the Spirit. They don't have the Spirit of God in them. They're dead in their spirits. That's their spiritual state. They are not born again. They are not Christians. That's why verse 18 says they are scoffers. They mock the things of God. They mock the people of God. They have no desire to worship God and to seek God's glory whatsoever. They have no desire to unite with the people of God. They have no desire to build up fellow believers in the church. They follow their own ungodly passions. They're zealous for something. They're passionate about something, other things. But it's not about God, is it? Nor the things of God. They come to church to seek and fulfill their own needs and their own desires. And the scripture is clear on what they are called. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. Yes, verses 17 through 19 aims to reiterate. Verses 5 through 16 in describing the false teachers and false converts whereas verses 5 through 16 gave old testament examples and warnings of false teachers these verses 17 through 19 gives us the new testament warning these verses are the apostolic warning that false teachers would indeed be present in the church in the last days but there's more to these verses than just extended descriptions that's why one of the first things we should notice is the drastic shift of who Jude begins to address. It's one of the reasons why it's clear to me verse 17 is the start of a new section. You see, back in verse 5, look at verse 5, Jude said, Now I want to remind you, and Jude goes on to remind us, all that he wants us to know about who the false teachers are. These people, these people, repeated in verses 8, 10, 12, 16, and 19. Here, Jude begins to address the believing community. That's you and I, beginning in verse 17. But you, beloved, must remember. That's them, but you. You is emphatic. The you is emphasized. But you. They are them, but you. So brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm so thankful that you are here because this word is for you. But you. Jude follows up with two important instructions on how Christians ought to contend for the faith, but you in verse 17, and again in verse 20, but you. So on Wednesday at a sermon preview that many of you guys participated in, we talked about a three-point outline, but technically this could be a two-point sermon, but it's not, sorry, three points for today. Anyways, back to the subject at hand, I find it remarkable that in this entire letter about contending for the faith, there is not one command, is there? to go head-to-head, MMA style, with false teachers at all. Verses 17 through 19, as I already said, the first active step in contending in our persevering is remembering the faith of the apostles. Jude says we Christians need to remember that the apostles already predicted these things would happen. And what Jude meant by the apostles are those who served as the foundation of the church, Those who are the authoritative interpreters and witnesses of the Gospel. The apostles were those who were present with Jesus and those who observed Jesus' life, death, resurrection and ascension. Or they were specifically commissioned by Jesus to be responsible in the initial establishment of the church like the Apostle Paul. Therefore, when Jude says in verse 17, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying to us, Christians, These words have authority. These words have truth in them. These words are important. So remember their predictions. Remember their words. Remember their teachings. Don't be surprised. Don't be caught off guard. Be watchful. Be ready. Be prepared. Just as they said to you, it will be so. It's a warning from God to us through the words of the apostles in the words of Jude as a reminder of God's care for his people. Specifically in these verses, the predictions of the apostles were regarding false teachers in the last time according to verses 18 and 19. In the last time does not mean some far off time or far off era. New Testament Christians believe that the last days has dawned with the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and with his death and resurrection. This is why the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1:2, in these last days God has spoken to us by his Son, indicating, telling us that the last days have arrived. That time is now. These are the last days. That's why Jude's readers should not have been surprised. False teachers were present, as the apostles predicted they would, and neither should we, that there are false teachers among us, and false converts among us, and false Christians among us. For us Christians in the year 2023, Jude's warning to remember has even more significance, doesn't it? I love how Dr. Tom Schreiner in his commentary explains what Jude means by remembering in regards to these verses. He says, and I quote, Remembering in the scripture does not involve a mere mental recollection as when we remember a person's name that we had temporarily forgotten. Remembering means that one takes to heart the words spoken so that they are imprinted upon one's life imprinted in our hearts and our minds close quote so for us today brothers and sisters we should not be merely aware that those last days are these days we should not merely be caught off guard not only should we be watchful and ready for false teaching and false teachers to creep in amidst us and know that they are present in our midst seeking to divide churches but 2,000 years of church history should teach us that we must fortify our churches with sound biblical theology and ecclesiology the biblical prescription for how the church should be structured and how the church should function. That's how we can guard against sneaky scoffing intruders in the first place. In order to guard ourselves from the divisive manipulators and to admonish false teachers and confessors when they come in our midst. How do we do it? We must do it through biblically qualified elders preaching faithful expository sermons from the Bible. Not with Bibles closed, but Bibles open to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the members to know and discern what the truth is and what is heresy according to scripture, to teach its members how to discern wolves from the sheep, through sound biblical theology guarding the church against theological error and heresy, through an accurate understanding of the doctrine of conversion, who is a genuine born-again Christian and who is not, through healthy church membership and healthy congregationalism where only true believers are called Christians and given the privileges of the keys of the kingdom and heavenly citizenship. All are welcome, of course, to join us for our Sunday gatherings as we worship God. All are invited to hear the good news, but call them for what they are, believers or unbelievers. That's why at our church, we are not afraid to address unbelievers among us. Again, if you're not a Christian here and you are here, welcome. We welcome you to this gathering through biblical culture of discipleship where members are pouring into each other towards sound, mature faith, through church discipline where sinful behavior is corrected and confronted in love, where repentant sinners are restored back into fellowship. Brothers and sisters, 2,000 years of church history should have taught us that we must guard against worshiping God through unbiblical practices of worldly pragmatism and religious legalism. Yet so many churches are still today attempting with human efforts to fill the pews, to fill the quotas, to fill the pink with names that is not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The Bible warns us against false teachers in those last days. You could write these Bible verses down. Matthew 7, 15 through 20. Matthew 24, 24. Acts 20, 28 through 30. First Timothy 1 3. First Timothy 6, verse 2, 2 Peter 2, 1. All these verses that I just mentioned are few references that there will indeed be false teachers and false teaching in our midst. Should we not be discerning? Should we not be wise? Is it unloving to say who is in and who is out? Should we not guard the what and the who of the gospel when there are clear warnings in scripture? Why must our zeal for the loss for evangelism compromise scripture's call for vigilance? What does creativity and spontaneity and innovations and metrics have to do with over 2,000 years of church history? Why should God's word be pitted against man's ways? Christians ought to hold up the inerrancy and sufficiency of God's word for all of life and godliness, for all time and for all generation, individually and corporately for the church. Amen? What I mean by remembering the faith of the apostles is remembering the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It is the holistic doctrine of what the Christian is, what the church is. Jude is calling us to be on the offense, to be on guard, to be watchful in order to contend for the faith. Be careful. Brothers and sisters, be careful to remember, remember the faith of the apostles. Dear brothers and sisters, how do you remember to imprint the faith of the apostles in your heart? Ask yourselves, examine your hearts today. How do you remember to imprint the faith of the apostles in your hearts? I have one simple application for you. Seek to be a healthy church member. This church exists for that purpose. To help you. To help you grow. To help you discern. To help you grow in spiritual maturity. Prioritize, brothers and sisters, the Word of God and His commands for us. Participate actively. If you're going to be a member of this church, participate actively as you can in the corporate gatherings of this church. Reflect on the church covenant. Examine yourself. Examine your heart. Examine your life to see if you are in the faith as according to 2 Corinthians 13, 5 and 2 Peter 1, verses 10 through 11. As we will do together as we participate in the Lord's Supper in remembrance of Christ's sacrifice for us at the close of service. I want to encourage you to talk to an elder and ask how you can better grow and be more accountable. Pursue discipling relationships and read good books to grow in theology and in your knowledge of scripture. Are you struggling? Are you burdened? Are you anxious? And the flip side of that question is, are you discipling? Are you meeting with someone regularly to study the word? Are you praying? Are you encouraging somebody? I guarantee you, you are struggling, you are burdened, you are anxious because you are not growing in the word of God. Remember the faith of the apostles. But there's more helpful wisdom in the next point. How can Christians be kept in the faith to the end? Point number two. Remain. Remain in the love of God from verses 20 through 23. Look with me to verses 20 and 21 again. It says this. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. These verses are the most straightforward instructions of this entire epistle. So I hope you really get it. Three participles. Modify one central imperative. With your Bibles open, following along. Building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Praying in the Holy Spirit. Waiting for the mercy of our Jesus Christ. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Three participles that modify one central imperative. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Some may ask the question, I thought God is the one who keeps us to the end. What, What does this mean? Why is Jude commanding us to keep ourselves in the love of God? Well, it makes sense, doesn't it? If I claimed, like I did last week, that I said yes to my wife and no to a thousand other women, that doesn't exist. Fighting for my marriage isn't going out every night looking for potential threats because I love my wife. It's not staying out to keep guard outside of the house instead of coming home to my wife every night. It's not trying to fend off those who I think are are jealously winking at my wife or trying to flirt with my wife or talk to my wife. That doesn't help my marriage at all. At times, necessity will call for protecting my wife in such a way, but mostly fighting for marriage, contending for my marriage is spending time with my wife. It's to keep our love healthy and growing by building up our marriage through growing together in the Word, by praying together, communicating spiritual things with each other, forgiving my wife and being forgiven by my wife over and over again with Christ as the center. Just like so, contending for the faith offensively and deliberately is to keep yourselves in the love of God. How can you fight for something you don't love? How can you contend for something you have no care for whatsoever? It's no wonder so many churches and Christians don't contend for the faith because they have no love for the gospel. They don't even know the gospel. They have no love for Jesus. They have no love for His church. It's all about me and my experiences and what I get out of going to church. Maybe they love all its ideas, but do they love God as revealed by Scripture in its entirety? That means we can't pick and choose what we want to believe. We can't accept some things and reject some things in the Bible. Jude understands in order to contend, in order for Christians to be devoted to the faith, we can't only concentrate on resisting false teachers by remembering false teachers, discerning false teachers, being watchful of false teachers, like we talked about last week. Those things are necessary, but we must more actively grow in the Christian faith by keeping ourselves in the sphere of God's love. In fact, contending for faith is contending to keep ourselves in God's love, to keep our hearts beating, to keep my love strong, to keep my affections hot for God. As 2 Timothy 5, 6 says, For this reason I remind you to fan the flame, the gift of God which is in you. Fan into flame the gift of God, the spirit of God, the salvation of God which is in you. Are you doing that these days? How do we do that? Jude gets very practical. Again, Jude gives us a triad, three ways we can keep ourselves in God's love. You also see Jude show the implicit Trinitarian nature of keeping ourselves in the most holy faith, in the Holy Spirit, in the love of the Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ. But not only that, did anyone notice the double trilogy here? Most holy faith, the love of God, and waiting for the eschatological mercy of Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, hope, faith, hope, and love working in us. In other words, simply, perseverance in the Christian faith is a Trinitarian work. It is thoroughly a Christian doctrine that salvation from start to finish, faith, hope, and love, is God, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, working in us to keep us in our faith to the end. Amen? So let's break it down for a bit. First look at the first part of verse 20, which says, Building yourselves up in your most holy faith. The best way to understand how to do this is for believers to build on our faith foundation. Notice Jude's intentional language. He means to draw our attention to the idea of building up the temple or the church of God. Paul uses the same word, build up. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 twelve and fourteen, Ephesians two twenty, Colossians two seven. The clear exhortation here is that believers are to build up the church collectively. This is not describing individual followers of Jesus building himself up or herself up, only followers of Jesus together corporately are to build up the community of Jesus together. Jude is intentionally contrasting, again, with a double use of the emphatic, but you, in verse 17 and 20, the false teachers and false believers who aimed only to build themselves up or divide the community of faith, Christians are to build up the church in your most holy faith. This is our duty, but you. Well, how ought Christians build up our most holy faith together? How ought we build up the church this way? Ask yourselves, What is the foundation of our faith? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the most holy faith upon which the New Testament church is built, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to ask you this afternoon, do you know what that is? Do you know how to articulate clearly the gospel of Jesus Christ? The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. It is the best news you will ever hear that God who is holy, unlike any other, created all things in love for His glory and for our good. But man, having been tempted by Satan, chose to be a god unto himself, deliberately disobeying God's word, choosing death over life. As a result, we were separated from God, entirely helpless to save ourselves from the vain and dissatisfying power and curse of sin. And because of our continuous rebellion and sin, we rightly deserve His wrath and judgment as the consequential sentence of our sin. But God, in His mercy, had a plan from the very beginning to call a people, to sustain a people, to keep a people for us to know His great, awesome, amazing, redeeming love. How? By sending His own Son, Jesus Christ, who is truly God and truly man, to live the life that we could not live. To die the death we should have died. He was delivered up for our sake as a sacrificial substitute on the cross for our sin, for all of our unrighteousness, for all of our iniquities. He, Christ, paid the debt that we would have suffered in eternal hell. But that's not the end of the story, is it? Jesus Christ rose again from death on the third day, conquering sin, Satan, and death once and for all. And whosoever would repent and believe in Him will not die and go to hell, but participate in His resurrection. In Him, we get to live the abundant life here on earth right now and await with hope for the mercy of His return to live a glorious eternal life with Him forevermore. At His invitation, brothers and sisters, by His mercy, not dependent dependent on our good works, He keeps us in His love through the Lord Jesus Christ to the end. If you're not a Christian here this afternoon, again we welcome you, we are so thankful that you are here. But if I may, ask you a question. What is your foundation? What is your center? What is the ground upon which you can stand on confidently? When everything in this life falls apart underneath you, when people disappoint you, when you disappoint yourself, when life kicks you in the gut multiple times. If Jesus isn't your substitute, your advocate, your Savior and Lord, you have no firm ground to stand on, no firm foundation. The Bible says, in fact, very clearly, you will not stand in the day of judgment because the guilty will be punished. You will incur the full wrath of judgment you have reaped upon yourself if you reject his mercy by rejecting his Son. So I plead with you today, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who made an end of all your sin. This afternoon you're gonna leave this place either forgiven or not. You will either be clear in God's sight or else the wrath of God will still remain on you. And I beg of you, do not rest. Do not rest, do not leave this place until you know where you stand. Repent of your sins. That means turn from trusting in the things of this world and trusting in yourself. Believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again for you to forgive you of your sins and to give you new and eternal life. And all you have to do is to trust Him today with your whole life and tomorrow. Wake up tomorrow and trust Him, not in yourselves, not in the things of this world. Trust Him today and forevermore. If you want to know more about how you can follow Jesus, please talk to any of the pastors at the close of service, at the doors, or talk to someone smiling next to you. You're going to find a lot of smiley faces after service, and they're eager to tell you about how you can know more about Jesus. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, how do you build yourselves up in the most holy faith? It starts with you individually committing to this work. Do you regularly read and meditate on God's word? Do you memorize on the sweet and glorious truths of the gospel? Do you study the Bible and able to teach it and disciple others in the faith? Do you put the effort in doing that? Do you posture yourselves with humility before this book with hungry hearts and listening ears and thirsty souls to feast on the words that is the very source of life? This is the very source of the Christian faith. So do you treasure it? Do you love it? Do you read it? Do you study it? And then do you help others do this also through discipling? Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Are you doing that regularly, intentionally? Discipling simply means this, doing spiritual good unto others in order to help them follow Jesus. Are you doing that regularly? Building yourselves up together in your most holy faith, is the first means in remaining in God's love. The second means by which Christians can remain in God's love is by praying in the Holy Spirit. That's the second part of verse 20. Now, some of you guys are thrown off anytime the Holy Spirit is mentioned, especially as Baptists. Is this some sort of charismatic prayer that we don't know about? No. What Jude is referencing is the only kind of Christian prayer, praying in the Holy Spirit. Simply, what Jude means here by praying in the Spirit is to pray Christian prayers. D.A. Carson in his book, Praying with Paul, which everyone should read in this room, has a very helpful illustration for Christians. We ought to pray until you pray, not just heap up empty words to God. Charles Spurgeon says this about prayers without the Holy Spirit. Cold prayers ask for a denial. The lips may move, yet the heart remains silent. When we ask the Lord coolly and not fervently, we do it as it were stopping his hand. And restrain Him from giving us the very blessing we pretend that we are seeking. Oh, those cold-hearted prayers that die upon our lips. Those frozen supplications. How can they move the heart of God? They do not come up from our souls. They do not well up from the deep secret springs of our innermost heart. And therefore, they cannot rise up to Him who only hears the cry of our souls. Before whom hypocrisy can weave no veil or formality practice any disguise, we must be earnest. Otherwise, we have no right to hope that the Lord will hear our prayer. We should speak to God from our own hearts and talk to Him as a child talks to His Father. God always has an open ear and a ready hand if you have an open and ready heart. Take your groanings and your sighs to God and He will answer you. Close quote. Brothers and sisters, only prayers in the Holy Spirit can move God's heart. When I went to Korea a few years ago, I saw the funniest sign outside of a Buddhist temple in the middle of the city. 100 days of prayer for job promotion. 7 days of prayer for college acceptance. Christian prayer is not robotic, legalistic, or formulaic. Prayer is dependence on God. Prayer is communion with God. Theologian John Calvin says, prayer is the chief exercise of faith. Prayer is the chief exercise of faith. As you build yourselves up in your most holy faith, as the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, stirs faith and gives spiritual life, prayer is the evidence of living faith, as breath is the evidence of life. This is why Martin Luther famously said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Christians who have spiritual life, have spiritual breath, Christians who have faith, pray. So praying in the Holy Spirit is remaining in God's love. The third means by which Christians can remain in God's love is by waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, the second half of verse 21. I'll talk more about this in my final point, but what Jude is pointing to is the eschatological, the end time hope we have of Christ's return. How does waiting for the mercy of Jesus for that day keep us in the love of God? Because Christians know that although we deserve the great wrath of God and the justice of God for our sins, we will be spared by the life-altering mercy of God because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. As the called, the beloved, and the kept of God, we await with hope for that day of mercy Because we will be one with our Creator. And on that day, mercy will be fully and finally realized. Amen? Furthermore, I want to make a case that verses 22 and 23 are also the means for Christians to remain in God's love. These are very important verses. So look with me there, 22 and 23. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. You see, Jude is pointing this out. Those who have experienced Life-altering mercy extends mercy. That's simply how Christianity works. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is to love your neighbor as yourself. That is a great commandment. The two are directly related. They cannot be separated. You can't say you love God and hate your brother or sister. You can't say you love Jesus and not share the good news of Jesus Christ, the best news you will ever hear. You can't say you appreciate God's mercy. Lord, please forgive me and not show mercy to others. After exhorting us for 16 verses to contend for the faith by recognizing who the false teachers are, is it strange to you that when it comes to actually doing something about the false teachers, Jude says, have mercy. Notice the degree to which the mercy of Christ should be extended to those who doubt, to others who are about to fall into the fire of judgment. To others who you should even fear because you hate even the clothes they wear because they are so sinful and so evil. The point of this section is to remind us of the great mercy we have received in Jesus Christ, which is the reason for the great love and how we are kept in Him. You see how Jude teaches us, those who have been called, beloved, and kept by Jesus Christ respond and evidence to the truth of who we are by another triad to exemplify the complete Christian faith, by our discipleship, building ourselves up in the most holy faith, by our spiritual disciplines, praying in the Holy Spirit, by our eschatological hope and evangelism, waiting for the mercy and extending mercy, the mercy of God. So brothers and sisters, how are you doing in your discipleship? How are you doing in your spiritual disciplines? How are you doing in your evangelism? This is how the children of God keep ourselves in the love of God. Amen? But there is a greater reason why we keep ourselves in God's love. Because of the certain hope that our faith will turn to sight. What we know by faith will one day become a reality. Amen? Brothers and sisters, right now we are holding on with hope and faith. That what we believe about Christ is true. We have assurance, of course. But on that day, our faith will turn to sight. How can we be kept in faith to the end? Rejoice in the certainty of Christ's reign. From verses 24 through 25. I'm almost done. Look with me to verse 24. It says this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Somebody say joy. After everything, Jude reminded us about those who have in history, those who in the present and those who in the future, who will stumble on their path to heaven. These final two verses of Jude are a balm for our anxious souls, a praise to him for his certain security. Jude's concluding words in these final two verses follows the common form of the New Testament doxology, an exalted prose of praise and prayer. And no wonder this is the case since sound theology, what we know about God leads to doxology, the worship of God. A right knowledge of God, of who He is, results in the praise and worship of God, the one true God. Hence this is the natural conclusion of the letter, a doxology. Jude had begun his epistle telling us we are kept for Jesus Christ, verse 1, Then Jude called believers to keep ourselves in the faith. In verse 21, now he closes by telling us we are kept from stumbling and falling prey to false teaching by Him who is able. With these three occurrences of the same idea of kept, 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 we can rightly understand the full and mysterious work of salvation. As Dr. Tom Schreiner says once again, Jude's conclusion reminds the readers of the heart and soul of the Christian life. Jude reminds the readers, you and I, that God is one who is able, that God is one who is able and willing to keep us from succumbing to apostasy, to heresy. False teachers and believers threaten all they want, but those who belong to the Lord will not and cannot be moved. We will not capitulate. We will continue to be faithful to the end because of Him who is able. How? Why? Is it that we will not apostatize and fall into their doom like others? Because our faithfulness until the end is not due to our own nobility, our own merits, or our inner strength. It is God himself who keeps his own from falling away. In this verse, to be kept from stumbling means to denote the idea of being guarded. And protected or preserved. It is God's power that He grants us, you and me, to keep us in His love by the means of His graces. God Himself grants us the strength so that we desire to keep ourselves in God's love. I should note the idea of stumbling here does not refer to sinfulness. This verse is not telling us that we will be kept in perfection. Rather, it's telling us that we will not be lost. Ultimately, our souls will be kept to the end. It is an eschatological, an end times promise that God will not allow us to be abandoned in our faith once and for all because we belong to Him. The idea is confirmed in the following phrase, and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory. Literally, the word present you means to make you stand. And we know from elsewhere in the New Testament the term stand refers to this very thing that I just mentioned, the eschatological vindication that we will see God's throne on that final day. Oh my goodness, don't miss the treasure trove, brothers and sisters, of this verse. Not only will the one who is able make us stand on that final day, he will make us stand blameless. What? What? How can this be? We were ones who are dead in our trespasses and sins. We whom our hearts were wicked and desperately sick, standing before the glorious and majestic one, blameless. Jude wants us to understand the infinite and unfathomable blessing of those who are called, beloved, and kept by him to the end. 1 Peter one nineteen describes Jesus as the unblemished, spotless lamb because we are kept by Jesus Christ, kept for Jesus Christ, kept in Jesus Christ. God looks on His sinless Son, whom He placed on the cross as our sacrifice and in the shedding of His blood. As Christ looks upon Him, He looks to you and me. He sees us sinless and faultless and clothed in imputed righteousness of Christ. He sees us through Christ. That's what Revelation 3, 4 means when it says, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. No wonder, as the hymn writer John Newton describes in his hymn Amazing Grace, says this, When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we've first begun. On that final day, brothers and sisters, when we stand before the presence of our glorious and majestic God, our Savior and Lord, Redeemer, Jesus Christ, we will stand with great joy, exceeding joy, unspeakable joy, unending joy, indescribable joy, because we will stand blameless. Think of the most happiest you've ever been after you've done something terrible and you realize you are forgiven. Think of the most happiest moment in your life. The moment your team came back from the biggest deficit to win the biggest upset. The moment you got into college of your choice. The moment you got your first offer letter from your first job. The moment you saw your bride walk down the aisle. The moment you held your first baby. The moment your almost dead baby, as I was telling my story, wakes up back after three days, as I shared with you. Think of those moments times a gazillion, trillion, billion. 10,000 years will not be enough for you to experience the joy of standing before the glorious, majestic Lord Jesus Christ in whom we have redemption and faith. Oh my goodness, these verses alone can be a sermon series on its own. You get why Jude is such a power-packing epistle, two of the longest sermons I've ever preached at NCBC. Here they are. I'm almost done though. This is why, as David Helm says, Jude has given us incredibly in the space of a half a sentence, perhaps the most concise summary ever put down on paper of all that God accomplishes for us, this uncommon, this unique salvation, consists of what God is able to keep us from that which He is able to present us to, and the one through whom He accomplishes it all. In considering all this, our hearts swell up with thanksgiving and praise, doesn't it? Goodness, I really don't want to skim over oh, verse 25, but I hope you just get at least a little glimpse. I pray, as it says in Psalm 34:8, that you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Because our God is the only God. There is no other God. There is no other God who can even compare. He is the one. He is one of a kind. He is the only one who is able. He is our Savior through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is holistically who He is. The Father saves us. The Son secures us. The Spirit seals us. To him be glory. Glory signifies the outward manifestation of who he is. His honor, his beauty, his outshining character and nature inherent and intrinsic to him alone. Majesty, his greatness, his awesomeness, his status as the king and sovereign over all. Unique only to him as the king of kings and lord of lords. Dominion, which describes his power, his control over all creation. His omnipotence, that he is not limited by might, space, or time and authority. His intrinsic right to rule all things. All things are in his jurisdiction. He's got the whole world in his hand. He is in control over all eternity. Hence, before all time, and now, and forever, past, present, and future, another triad to express his completeness and perfection. Past, present, future, his complete salvation, his complete perfection. And all of God's people said as that final word of this letter, Amen. At the end of the day, what can Christians do but to rest and rejoice in the hope and certainty of Christ's return and reign? This is how we contend for the faith. We proclaim and testify before all time and now and forever. Jesus kept us for salvation by keeping us in the love of the Father and keeps us from stumbling to make us stand blameless before the presence of His glory with exceeding eternal joy. How do we contend for the faith? We remember the faith of the apostles. We remain in the love of God. We rejoice in the certainty of Christ's reign. Faith, love, and hope of the Father, Son, and Spirit. In Him we remember the great life-transforming mercy He grants to us. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now, and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. On that faith, we stand confident today. Upon your great mercy, we remember, remain, and rejoice until the final day of your return when we will be united with you and all who love and fear your name. Praise be to the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is in him we pray. Amen.